Acts 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, drawn out by the heat, fastened itself to his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belongs to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with all the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put up at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. Uh, there, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I have any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letter from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them that the kingdom of uh, declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through the Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will ever be hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes 
hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a couple of the couple of the songs, that, a couple of the lyrics in particular, in a few of those songs, I was especially grateful for uh, the the line, "Jesus, your name is power." Uh, we're going to see that uh, evidenced here in the text this morning. And singing, "Great is Thy faithfulness," uh, the that that third stanza jumped out at me, which says, "Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth." And then it says, "Thy own dear presence." To cheer into God. We're going to be speaking a lot about the presence of the Lord this morning and what that looks like and how that is uh, displayed and manifested on the island here at Malta. So uh, praise the Lord for uh, his leading you, Kevin and David, to uh, select those songs. Those those seem to, to fit nicely into where we're going this morning. Thank you, Kevin, for the reading of the scripture. And uh before we jump in here, I'm just going to ask if, if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you first and foremost that you are mighty God. You are our refuge. You are our strong tower. You are our shelter in the time of storm. You're our sure defense. And we praise you, Lord, for your presence with us. We know, Lord, that your presence with us is uh, the embodiment of a person the Holy Spirit, whom you've given to those in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you that your presence is with us as well through your revealed word. We thank you, Lord, your presence is with us even as we gather here as brothers and sisters in Christ, in this community called the church. And Father, we pray this morning for your presence uh, to be here among your people. Pray that, Lord, there would be uh, opportunities to be taught, that, Lord, you would, through your word, awaken us to the truths that you have for us and that you would move us as your people to seek your presence wherever we might find ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the detours in this life as a further way to serve you during our short stay here. And so, Father, we ask that you would lead us, as the psalmist says, you would lead us in your paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you're driving along the road, those of you that can drive, when all of a sudden up ahead, you notice a roadblock that's stationed right along the road, the road in which you're about to turn on. And you see that sign, it's an orange sign, detour. Detour, and it's got an arrow, and it's pointing you a different direction. What's your reaction to the detour sign? When you see it, what's your immediate reaction? Oftentimes. Frustration might be the number one answer. Frustration. 
Any other words come to mind? I think that summarizes in many ways how most of us feel when we come and approach a detour sign. What is a detour? A detour, simply put, is an alternate route to get to your destination. And oftentimes a detour has to do with road construction. They're doing some kind of work and you cannot travel on this particular road. So they are rerouting you where eventually, at some point, you get back on that road that you really want to be on. And I was thinking through some characteristics of a detour, and I think that for many of us, we know a few of these. Perhaps we haven't thought of all of these characteristics. Because I think frustration is typically what most of us feel. We may not voice anything, but on the inside, we're upset, disappointed, because we really want to be where we need to be. We're upset, right? Because one of these characteristics is that a detour typically makes our journey longer. We have to wait longer to get where we really would like to be. And oftentimes then, in light of that, we blame the detour sign for our lateness. The reality is, we oftentimes are people that don't leave on time. Truly not the detour sign's fault. But it does delay us, makes us wait. These detour signs are often unexpected. We drive up, boom, there it is. These detour signs, truth be told, dampen the spirit. <sighs> you get there and you, ah. Oh. But... The detour signs also direct you, they direct you down, it's a different path. It's taking you a different path. And the detour sign is also signaling the way through the maze of construction. Have you ever been, maybe you go through a town and they're doing all kinds of construction and there's a detour sign here. And you go and there's a detour. And you, you end up, feel like you're going in circles. But what's the detour sign doing? It's showing you where you need to go to get back on the right path. So in that regard, it's very helpful. I would venture to say that many of us don't view the detour sign as very helpful in life. Most of us just flat out don't like detours. See, we live among a people who like things done their way. And detours take us on alternative routes, unfamiliar roads. And we like our familiar roads. We like to go the way we know. We don't enjoy waiting either. Everything's fast in our culture today, isn't it? We want it right now. We don't like being rerouted. We don't like to be told, you can't go this way. <laughs> Detours are, are signs that cause many of us great angst. We, we just, ah! And, and these signs... We'd rather not encounter them. These are the catalysts, that these detour signs are the catalysts for disgust. But I'd like to just present something here for you to think about this morning. What if the sign read this way as you're driving up and you see that orange sign and instead now it said, God's detour. Does that change at all the way you feel about the sign? 
Yes? No? Sort of, kind of? Maybe? Maybe I'll check into that a little bit more. God's detour. See, God's detour, when I was thinking about this, it sounded a lot better. It it, it provides some definition, first of all, to the detour. It tells, tells me whose detour it is. This is God's. God's detour. It also tells me, as a follower of the Lord, it helps me identify a purpose behind the detour. If, if it's God's detour, then surely this sign is here for my own good. And over time, we start to see those signs, God's detour. And it starts to now resonate with you. And you encounter another orange sign all of a sudden. And you see it says God's detour this way. And instead of disgust, instead of disappointment, you are filled with delight. And you rejoice now to turn your car in the opposite direction of where you really need to go. Because it's God's detour. And you recognize it and embrace it as his detour. And I realize that in part this is a silly illustration. But the truth of the matter is that God does post detour signs in our lives. See, oftentimes it's out of love for you that God posts a detour sign. It's as though God is saying, you might think you need to go this way, but trust me, head this way, my child. You might think you need to go this particular way. You might think that this is the only option. And God's saying, no, this is the way. Walk in it. You see, his detours are always meant for our good. And sometimes our definition of good don't line up, match what he seems to say is good. But it's true in Romans 8 that all things do work together for good, his good, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's true. Well, Paul has witnessed a few of God's detours during this book of Acts, has he not? He witnessed one particular detour that changed the whole course of his life. And we'll talk more about that detour as we go. But literally in Acts 9, he's traveling this road to Damascus to track down some of those who are belonging to Christ. And on this particular detour, he doesn't change his route per se. He changes his heart, doesn't he? And from that moment forward... Paul lives his life in a totally different way. We see a literal detour actually in the book of Acts as well where in Acts 16, Paul's on his missionary journey. You remember the story where he's getting ready to go this way and the Holy Spirit shows up and says, no, you're not going to go that way. And he goes this way and the Holy Spirit says, nope, detour, you're going to go this way. We see that that Paul is even here as we open the pages of of Acts 28. Paul is in the midst of one of God's detours. 
He's supposed to be going where? Rome. That's where he's going. But he's found himself of late in a storm at sea. About a two-week delay at sea, which caused a layover of another three months on an island. God's detour takes Paul and his traveling companions to the island of Malta. We know that is the case because chapter 28, verse 1, says that when they had escaped, they found out that the island was called Malta. So they arrive on the island. Someone there tells them where they have come ashore. And so for the next three months, Paul is stranded on an island, having to wait for warmer weather before they can move on in the ship. And a couple questions come to mind. What's he going to do during the waiting? And how is he going to respond to God's detour? See, truly this is part two of the detour in many ways because he just spent 14-day detour out in the sea. The detour is not quite done. Now he's shipwrecked. Now, now today's text is the other side of the shipwreck. What's going to happen and occur on the other side of the shipwreck? God's detour is still at work. And I believe the big idea, one of the things is I'm looking at the passage and looking at these first 10 verses of chapter 28. I see that God's people experience God's presence in the midst of God's detours. God's people experience God's presence. We're going to talk a lot about God's presence and how his presence here in these 10 verses gets manifested. In the midst of his detours. What started out as a trip from Caesarea to Rome turned into one detour after another due to the winds, due to the storms. If you just track on the map where they were headed, where they were intending to go, but where they couldn't go from time to time because of the winds blowing them off course. They've become accustomed here over these last couple months to detours. The destination is Rome. Paul has appealed to Caesar's court and Festus, remember, back in chapter 25, agreed to send Paul. And we read last week that this northeaster, this storm, typhoon-like wind, it's calm, the ship's broken into pieces, and yet God had promised to Paul and to all on board that they would make it safely to shore. And while he promised safety, Paul does also include the word from God to say that the ship was also going to run aground. And it did run aground. And all 276 passengers made it safely to shore. That shore, we see in chapter 28, verse 1, is named Malta or Melita. The locals knew Melita as the place of refuge. Isn't that interesting? Uh, That's really the the name there. Malta is deemed the place of refuge. And I was thinking about that and considering that as I'm reading this text. It truly did become a place of refuge for Paul and his companions. This island, Malta, measured 17 miles long and about 9 miles wide. Not a very big island. But he's stranded nevertheless. 
And he's at the mercy of those who inhabit this island. See, what's oftentimes not talked about when we get to Acts 28 and they get to the shore, I think we assume that things are going to be okay. But I'm sure that, and if, if you read and you, and you see some histories here, and you, you find that when people land on islands, sometimes things don't work out okay. Sometimes those people on the islands don't treat the people who come on shore very kindly. Sometimes people who land on shore on an island they've never been to, where they've not been invited, sometimes their lives are in jeopardy. The details of these first ten verses display the other side of the shipwreck. You see, God's detour included this two-week test at sea, but it also involved a three-month layover at Malta. Remember, as we read, the destination is Rome. They're not there yet. And as Paul and company await warmer traveling conditions, what better place to be at this point than what's known as the place of refuge? The place of refuge. You know, as I was thinking about that, I was drawn to Psalm 46. A few verses in Psalm 46, it begins with God is our refuge. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And then twice in that psalm, in verse 7 and verse 11, it says, The God of Jacob is our refuge. The God of Jacob is our refuge. A refuge, when we think about a refuge, especially for you younger folks in here, a refuge is a place that you can run to. A safe place. It's the place where we know that things are going to be okay. And for you younger ones, perhaps one of your greatest refuges is is your your dad or your your mom. And you know that when you fall down, you can run and dad or mom are going to help you get through that hard time. But you see, for for all of us, I think it's important for us to understand that, that God truly is our refuge. He is a very present help in trouble. Proverbs 18.10 says that the name of the Lord is a what? Strong tower, a refuge. The righteous run to it and are safe. See, Malta is about to be changed forever due to God's detour here in the life of Paul and company. See, this isn't just about what God's doing in Paul's life to change Paul. In fact, I'm convinced that through all of this that God's done a work in Luke himself as he's writing. That God has done a work in Aristarchus. That God has done a work among those other 200 plus folks on board that ship. And now they're shipwrecked. They're on this island of Malta for three months. A detour is going to teach not only Paul some other things... The Lord's taught him many things to this point. But the Lord is also now going to be teaching, I believe, these people on Malta some things about the Lord. He's going to be showing them through Paul's detour his presence. And his presence is going to be manifested in many different ways on this island. 
Just in these few verses that we have before us in 1 through 10. Imagine these men. Imagine being on the island and you're seeing all of these men start coming to shore. Do you get the picture? Some of these were swimming. Some of them were on pieces of the ship. But eventually all 276 of them, because God is faithful, he said it would happen and it happened. Eventually, all 276 make their way to shore. And they're all dripping wet. They're probably worn out. They're probably exhausted. They're probably hungry. The text tells us that it was raining. That the men were cold. And I'm sure at this point, these men who had made their way to shore are wondering what is going to await us now. What now? I'm sure many of them were just glad to get off the ship and get reacclimated to some firm footing on ground. They've been tossed, tempest tossed for 14 days. And now they're off the ship. That didn't quite happen like they'd hoped in terms of getting off the ship. But they all got off the ship. They're all on the island. I want you to see here in the text, the text paints two episodes for us. Okay, there's two primary episodes. One of them in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And the other one in 7, 8, and 9. And then verse 10 really is more of departure information for us as they're getting ready to leave the island at the end of that third month. But when we take episode 1 and 2, here's what I'd like you to think through this morning as we work the text. When we take these two episodes and we read them together, I believe they teach us a great deal about God's presence in the midst of God's detours. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through the text and walk through how God's presence is manifested here. And what we're going to see as we look at God's presence being manifested, we're going to see a cycle. A cycle. Remember the book of Judges? The Judges has a cycle to it. We're going to see certain things reappear. There's going to be one thing in particular that reappears, more so maybe than, than some others. But I want you to, to, to be listening and be looking at the text as we work through. I want you to be thinking about how is God's presence manifested here on this island in the midst of what is deemed to be a detour? Okay? I want you to be thinking through that as we work through the text. When we get to verse 2, verse 1 identifies where we're at. We're on the island of Malta. Verse 2. And the natives showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Here's the first Item, it's right out of the gate in verse 2 when they get on the island. I would imagine, I'm picturing that as, as these guys start coming on shore, that these natives were already about the work of getting a fire going. The presence of the Lord here is manifested in kindness. Just kindness exhibited to Paul and his companions as they are coming on the island. They are kindling a fire. They're making them feel welcome. There's a sense of hospitality here being shown by these natives. The word in the original text is barbaroi, which is where we get our word barbarian. And immediately when we hear that, 
we immediately think of these folks are hardcore, rough, around the edges, Ugh, not the kind of people you want to be around. Natives, they don't speak the language. Essentially, the word here, native, has in mind one who simply does not speak Greek or, or one who doesn't hold to Greek customs. Okay? Luke, when he writes and, and refers to these people as natives, he is not trying to pin a negative connotation about these people. That was the way you referred to someone who didn't hold to those Greek customs. Okay? So I, I think it's important to put that forward for our understanding. I don't want you to get the, the picture that these were uh, you know, folks that... You get this image when you hear barbarian. <laughs> There's an image that comes to your mind. Or native even. Right? But a different kind of folk. It's, a, it's important we understand the use of the word as Luke is giving us the, the word here in the text. But these natives showed unusual kindness. Unusual kindness. They took care of the shipwreck crew. And this was not a small crew, was it? 276 people. They took care of them. They met immediate needs by building a fire. These men were wet and they were cold due to the rain and the windy conditions. You know, and I was thinking about just the, the, the warmth of that, that fire. And then it was, a couple pictures came to mind. And a couple of you may be able to relate to this. The first illustration that came to mind was during the winter and how... I know from time to time the kids will go out and there's snow all over the ground. And like to go out and pick up snowballs, especially when it's good packing snow, and pick it up and throw it at each other, right? And, or scoop it up and build a, an igloo or, or just lay down and make snow angels or all kinds of stuff. And then at some point when you're done, you come inside. And I know this happens from time to time at our house. They come inside and there's a, there's a pot of hot cocoa. And they come in and they sit at the table and maybe a few marshmallows on top. And it warms the inside, doesn't it? A little hot cocoa. Or another great illustration that, that came to mind as I was reading this, just thinking about how they exhibited the Lord's, the Lord's presence was, was manifested through their kindness. And, and think about the people that were exhibiting this kindness. It truly was unusual kindness because we're led to believe these people didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet they were still exhibiting kindness. Now in a world today, that is unusual kindness. I was, I was drawn to one of my favorite places, especially in the morning, to go to. Some of you guys up north know this, but we enjoy Cracker Barrel. Now, it's, I have to admit, it's not as fun in the summer to go to Cracker Barrel. I like going in the winter. Because I like going in... And at Cracker Barrel in the winter, what happens? Do you know? You know that big fireplace? Oh. Fireplace and a cup of coffee. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that. That, that, that whole warmth and the way that it, it just welcomes you. There's a certain kindness here as you read the text. They come to the island. I, I, we can't just bypass this. There, there is a great kindness an unusual kindness shown to these men on the island of Malta. It, I, I'm not led to believe as I read the text that they've even had any initial conversations with these people. They're just exhibiting kindness. They're doing what men and women ought to be doing toward one another. They're doing the right thing. 
Paul and his companions are treated with this unusual kindness. And we see then in verse 3, the first part of verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire. I just want to stop right there for just a moment. I know the rest of you are excited about getting to the snake part. Hang in there. We'll get there. But here's another aspect of the Lord's presence I want you to see. And it comes through Paul this time. And that is service. Service. We saw kindness expressed by the islanders. And now we see service. Paul is still a prisoner, remember. And he's fresh off of this shipwreck. And he notices the natives in their kindness preparing the fire. But what struck, struck me as, as interesting with Paul is that he's still attentive to how he can serve. He's the one in the midst of this detour, this trial, this storm. And Paul is still attentive to how he can serve. Do you see this in the text? I, I want you to see that. He, he's gathering a bundle of sticks to place them on the fire. He's now Paul the wood gatherer. He sees a need. He gets up and he serves. See, Paul has a heart of service. And the Lord's presence in Paul's life reminds him of his identity. See, God's children are servants. That's who we are. We are to be servants. And we take our cue to serve from our servant king. Jesus Christ, who the Bible says in Mark chapter 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve. We take our cue from Jesus. If we're a follower of Jesus, one of the things we see Jesus do in the Gospels as we read, he was serving other people. And here we see Paul serving Serving in the midst of being a prisoner. Serving in the midst of a a recent shipwreck. Serving in the midst of being on an island. He has no idea who these people are. But he's serving. It's who we are in Christ. We're servants. Paul has service in mind. We look at the end of 3. And we go through verse 5. Paul gathered a bundle of sticks. Laid them on the fire. When he did this, a viper... There it is. Came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Fastened. What are the translations you got there? Bites. What else? Anything else? Fastened. Nobody else has anything besides fastened. Okay. Fastened on his hand. Do you get the picture there? Fastened on his hand. A viper. And there's a lot of people that want to talk about, you know, did it, did it really bite him or was it really poisonous? I think context answers our question. So when we're unsure, a lot of times what we need to do is look at the context. So look at verse 4. It might help you. So when the natives saw the creature, <laughs> the creature, you get, you know, this, this big, big thing, hanging on his hand. They said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. 
And herein we get a little bit of an insight into these natives, don't we? They're coming together and they're talking as they see this viper fastened on Paul's hand. And verse 5 says, But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. The Lord's presence, I believe, right here in this particular part of the text, manifests his protection. His protection. The Lord is protecting his servant, Paul. And, you know, as I was thinking about how God protected him here, I was reminded of just in the last chapter when the Lord spoke to Paul in the midst of the storm and he told Paul not to be afraid because he said, you must be brought before Caesar. And I wonder if in the moment when that snake is fastened on his hand, I wonder if he's reminded of God's word. You must be brought before Caesar. I wonder if it also reminded him of the time even further back in chapter 23, verse 11, when he had been testifying in Jerusalem and and the Lord shows up to him and says, just as you've testified before me here in Jerusalem, so you must also testify before me at Rome. You see, the, the Lord had presented himself to Paul and had told Paul on various occasions that he is going to testify before Caesar in Rome. And now here he is in a detour and this creature is fastened to his hand. Verse 5 says he shakes it off into the fire. He suffers no harm. He has God's word as his reminder of God's protection. And there's a point right there, I think. God's word is his reminder of how God is going to protect him. Friends, do we see God's word in that same way in our own lives? Do we know God's word to know that God is going to protect us just based on what he says? I think Paul has been given a word and he understands that where he's going to be. He doesn't know how he's going to get there. I think it's, it's even, it gets even muddier and murkier the longer he goes and he travels. He doesn't know the how, but he knows this is what God said. So he's operating by faith and he's walking that way. A snake bite's not going to prevent Paul from getting to Rome. You know, I was reading this text and the Lord's presence is, is no doubt evident here. And, and based on the text, the reader is, is led to believe that the, the snake in verse 4 is poisonous. Right? You read verse 4 and you see the natives are coming together and they're formulating this, who this guy is. He's a, he's a murderer. He must be a murderer. Justice. By the way, justice was one of their gods. So this could be used in a general sense, justice. But it could also very well be used in terms of justice was a, a, a god, was the daughter of Zeus. And so they're, they're gathering together and they're going, well, this man, and they, they probably figured out that Paul was a prisoner because there were other prisoners there. And Paul's a prisoner. Well, he escaped the sea, but uh-oh, that snake's fastened on his hand. Justice, the God of justice, has got him. We're going to see shortly their mind's going to be changed on that. Shortly. He escaped the storm, but he really must be a murderer. Verse 5 says that Paul shook the creature off of his hand, suffered no harm. You don't get the picture, at least Luke doesn't paint the picture here, of, of what I would be doing if something like that attached itself to my hand. I'm sure... If something like that attached itself to my hand, there would be more than one verse to describe what happened. It, it leads you to believe that Paul just 
saw it, shook it off. Now, maybe there was more than that, but that's about all Luke gives us. He shook it off. It fell in the fire. No harm done. And I was thinking about Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is talking to the disciples, he's sending them out, remember? And on one, on one occasion when they come back from uh, one of their ventures, Jesus tells them, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I was thinking about that, and I also found it interesting here in Acts 28 that this is a snake bite. A snake bite. Anyone remember who showed up in the Garden of Eden? In what form Satan showed up? A crafty, cunning serpent. I was thinking about how this snake... is being used to take Paul, one of God's servants, out of the picture. Paul shook him off and suffered no harm. Church, there's an application here. If you are in Christ, there are going to be many detours. There are going to be many occasions where the evil one who would like nothing more than to sidetrack you for good, knowing that you are effective for the Lord Jesus, will try to take you out, will try to do what he can to sidetrack you even more, to distract you, to get you out of play. If you bear the name of Christ, know that you bear a target. Especially if you bear the name of Christ that is producing fruit, advancing the gospel, furthering the word of God. You can be assured he doesn't like that. But here's the great hope and promise that we have. In Christ, we're reminded that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's no condemnation. Right? We can look at all these different passages of Scripture and we can see that just as Paul literally shook it off, we can do the same thing, not in our own strength. But we can walk with confidence. We can walk by faith, knowing that God is with us. And as we talked about last week, God being with us doesn't guarantee us another day of life. God being with us, God's presence with us can be manifested through our life. It can also be manifested in our death where God gets glory either way. It's interesting how when you read scripture and you see these little instances, how it reminds you, like this, this immediately catapulted me back to Genesis. <laughs> Praise God. For God's protection, we see his presence through his protection over Paul. 
We see in verse 6, the end of this first episode, it says, however, see they weren't quite sold on it yet, even though he shook the thing off. They were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time, you get the idea they're, they're really checking him out. This snake had been fastened on his hand and they're, he shakes it off and they're looking. They're looking for signs of swelling. They're looking for any signs in the face of him dropping down dead. Because to these islanders, he was supposed to die. But it says, when they saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, this makes very good sense if you are native and you're apart from from the Lord. Because you see, in their culture, for a viper to fasten itself onto one's hand to bite someone, to them, that means death. And to them, they saw with this group of people, they were putting two to two together, I'm sure, and they were saying, Paul's a prisoner, therefore he must be murderer. And when he shakes him off and he sees that he's not dying, he's still standing, seems like nothing's going wrong. He must be someone other than a mere mortal. He must be a God. Do you see how that works? That, that's, that's really the thought process. It ought not surprise us that they changed their mind and now view him as a God. In fact, it's interesting. It's sort of a, a, a twist in part. But back in Acts 14, you remember when Paul is in Lystra? You remember that? And they, they initially treated Paul and company as what? As gods. And they said, hey, wait, Paul says, time out. Wait, nope, I'm a man. And then it's in that same place where they end up doing what to him? <laughs> they stone him. It's just interesting how we see certain twists here. And on the island of Malta, we see God's protection. His presence manifested through his protection of Paul, even in the midst of this Snake bite. Well, in verse 6, we see another aspect of the Lord's presence. And, and I, I believe it's, it's found in, in, in a witness. In a witness. They looked. They didn't see. They changed their minds about who Paul was. He was a god. And, and, and the episode ends right there. We don't get anything else. And it's also one of those passages where I know, as I read, I'd like to, well, what, what else? What happened? What happened on the end of that? How did that all transpire? It just goes right to verse 7. But there's no doubt a witness because those islanders saw that Paul was still standing. It opened the door, I believe, for the Lord to do greater work in this period of detour on the island of Malta. His protective hand opens the door for Paul to be a witness. The Lord's presence in Paul's life allows this witnessing opportunity. And while Luke, here in the text, doesn't tell us, I'm sure that this event did open the door for sharing the gospel. You know, when we read the gospels and you see healing, teaching, and preaching, those are the cornerstones of what Jesus did in the gospels, right? Paul took took part in, in those three as well. And we see that oftentimes the healing was a catalyst for something greater. The the physical and the spiritual healing, they typically went hand in hand. Because you see, saving souls was the primary, not the healing of the body. I mean, they took care of the immediate need oftentimes. But it was really the the spiritual soul, the soul, understanding the soul needed to be saved. 
and transformed. And we see that while Luke doesn't speak to Paul proclaiming the gospel, did you notice that in this text? Luke doesn't give us the insight here into preaching the gospel. But we know Paul well enough, I believe, by this point in Acts 28 to know that Paul is a man. He had three, think about this, he had three months on this island. Do you think he preached the gospel at all while he was on the island? Even though Luke doesn't say he preached the gospel, Luke doesn't say a church was started in Malta. Luke doesn't say that all these people, he doesn't give us a number of how many were saved. Since Acts 27, one of Luke's objectives in writing is simply to get Paul from point A to point B, to get us to Rome. And he happens to share a few of the detours along the way. But I believe as the writer moved by the Holy Spirit, he's already given to us a sufficient amount of material about this man, Paul, so that now we know, here, he's, he's shipwrecked, he's on this island, and he is going to, because it's who he is, he's going to preach the gospel. He's going to be a witness. So episode number two pops on the scene in verse seven. And we see that in that region there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name, I love his name, Publius. He was the leading official of the island. Had lots of land. Look what he does. He received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And I was talking about that cycle earlier. The cycle comes back here. Kindness. How's the Lord's presence manifested on the island? Through kindness. Kindness of their leading man of the island. Their leader. Malta's leader is exhibiting kindness, hospitality, generosity. And I had to stop there as I was reading because what Publius is doing reminded me in so many ways of what the natives were doing initially in verse 2. And it got me to thinking a very important thing about leadership. I was at a leadership conference not too long ago. I'm assuming that's what the Lord was doing here. He was stirring some of the leadership things that I'd heard and listened to. I couldn't help but, but see this in the text, though. The natives were showing unusual kindness. And a few verses later, we see Publius, the leader of the island, showing kindness. Led me to believe that the natives perhaps got that idea from their leader. Oh, here again, some great application. Dads and moms. Children are watching. They're watching what to do. They also see some things not to do, perhaps. And it's important that we are modeling for them the things we hope for them to actually do. If we desire for our children to exhibit kindness, to exhibit hospitality, to exhibit... Let's make a whole list. What we'd like them to exhibit. It needs to be exhibited in us. And I believe here in the text, again, Publius, I I don't get the idea that he knows the Lord Jesus, but he knows how to serve. He knows what generosity is. He knows what kindness is. Let me take it up a step further for Publius. He's showing generosity and kindness 
in the midst of something that's going on in his life that's really hard. And I know some of you in here are going through the very same thing. You have aging parents. Parents that aren't doing well. Publius welcomes Paul and maybe all of the others. I don't know. We don't get a specific detail on if all of them are here. But for three days, he welcomes them in. That in itself is amazing. But then in verse 8, it says, It happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Publius is, is extending generosity and kindness in the midst of having a father that is ill, deathly ill. Many of us, if we're real honest, we're, we're oftentimes not up to being generous and hospitable when we've got a close family member who's living with us, who's sick. Agree? We've got, we, we, we've got to take care of our situation. But here's the leader of the land, and he's extending his, this kindness to Paul and his companions in the midst of that hard thing going on in his life. I think the Lord's teaching Paul and perhaps some others some lessons even while they're on this detour. Teaching lessons learned through the lives of these natives. I think there's a lot we can learn here. There's some things happening here. And I think that there's this servant-oriented idea that what we're told in verse 8, his father's ill. He takes Paul in for three days. And then we see verse 9. Again, coming around the cycle of the Lord's presence in this text. The cycle, we see service here again. This fever that his father had in verse 8 in dysentery. This fever was deemed a, a, a gastric fever. Um, kind of came and went. It was kind of an on, and on and off, on and off in real high uh, pitches of fever coupled with dysentery, which was oftentimes tied into poor sanitation um, in the area, in the ancient world. And we see that in the text, Paul, having recognized Publius and his father's situation, Paul goes in to him. That in itself is instructive. Ask yourself the question. Are you inclined to go in to the home of someone who has a fever, first of all? He goes in. Notice what he does next. He prays. He lays his hands on him. And his father is healed. Paul is in a detour, and yet he's serving. He's thinking of others' interests above his own interests. This is who Paul is. And we see here in the text in verse, verse 9, and at the end of 8 and also 9, another aspect of the Lord's presence here on this island is, is his power. His power. The presence of the Lord is put on display through God's power. Notice it says that, that Paul went into the house. He prayed. That's the first thing he did. He prayed. Why? 
What's he trying to let other people in the house know? What's he trying to make sure Publius understands? This isn't me. He heard Paul pray, saw Paul pray to God. He lays hands on his father, Publius' father. And God, through Paul, heals this man. Do you think that there's additional witnessing opportunities now? It's a cycle. Paul, Paul's service, we see additional witnessing opportunities. And on the heels of that, not only does Publius' father get healed, but verse 9 tells us that over the course of their three-month stay in this place of refuge, Paul heals many other islanders who had various diseases. That's what verse 9 says. When they heard the news about Publius' father, the rest on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Do you think that opened the door for further witnessing opportunities? See, God's power at work through servant-oriented vessels. It's making a difference, even in the midst of the detour. God's detour seems to be taking shape. Showing itself to be a productive, fruitful time for the Lord's sake. Look at verse 10. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. So we get the idea now that the three-month stay is coming to a close. But before they leave, they are showing honor. We don't know exactly what they gave, what they did. More than likely... They gave them things they could use and need on the rest of the journey to Rome. Clothing, food, other sundry items that would be helpful. And we see here a part of that cycle a third time that I've mentioned it, but it's nevertheless here. It's sort of like at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of the text. Kindness. The Lord's presence is exhibited through kindness once again. They are welcomed in with kindness. And they are sent out with kindness. And I would imagine the fact that since they were sent out with kindness leads me to believe that over the course of the three-month period, a good majority of them, if not all of them, came to hear and know the good news message of Jesus Christ. Because I believe Luke maybe would have painted a different picture upon their departure had there been dissension on the island of Malta. But that's not the picture at all that we see. It's a picture of generosity, hospitality, gratitude. And I was wondering as I was reading the text that as they left that third month, the presence of the Lord was surely in that place. It had been seen and and put on display in so many different ways in the course of those three months. As we see God's people experiencing God's presence in the midst of God's detours, I'd like to just close by looking specifically at what God's word has to say to us about his his presence. His presence in the midst of situations that maybe perhaps we're thinking, I don't know, Lord, 
You know, I go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and I'm reminded of those phrases in the life of Joseph. Remember, Joseph was sold as a slave to Potiphar's household. And that phrase, the Lord was what? With him. The Lord was with him. He gets put in prison for something he didn't do. And even in prison, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. We keep reading in the text, and you read the account in Exodus about a man that, that most of us in here know named Moses. And he's at the burning bush, and the Lord appears to him. And he says, come, I'm sending you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Listen to what the Lord says. First thing the Lord says, I will certainly be with you. I will certainly be with you. Some of you here today need to hear that. Because right now you may not be experiencing that presence of the Lord. This is why it's important that we have the word in us. Because the word in us is going to provide for us a certain level of assurance. A certain level of confidence. A certain level of faith to walk by. I will certainly be with you. We can keep looking in the scriptures. And oh, that psalm, that psalm that we, we, we oftentimes have recited and we know. Psalm 23. Remember Psalm 23? The Lord is my what? He's my what? Shepherd. Yeah, he's my shepherd. It's okay, you can say that because he truly is our shepherd. He's our leader. And we, we, we do not have want or lack when he's our shepherd. Uh, but I was, I was drawn to verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalmist says, I will what? Fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? Comfort me. We see time and time again in the scriptures, we see the promise in Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. Well, we see that in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, but, but that's really pointing backward to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses is about to die. And Moses has the people all gathered together in verse 6. And he's telling all the people to be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, the enemies around them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Two verses later, he brings up Joshua, who's going to be his successor. And he wants the people all to hear what he has to say to Joshua, who's now going to be the leader of the people. Verse 8, he says, And the Lord, he's speaking to Joshua among the people, He is the one who goes before you, Joshua. He will be with you, Joshua. He will not leave you nor forsake you, Joshua. Do not fear nor be dismayed. On and on we see in the scriptures. We see it in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 1. That these people are not going to be real nice to him. And yet he says, I will be with you. Verse 8. He says it in verse 19. We see it in 2 Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles, the king. You remember the king Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Chapter 20 and verse 17. This is wonderful. They're up against an army. Jehoshaphat's going before the Lord. He's crying out before the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon one of the prophets there and he speaks. And in verse 17, he says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. See the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. 
want to give you one more. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I've, I've kind of drifted a long ways away. I don't know if the Lord's going to be with me or not. I've done some things that I just don't know. Well, Psalm 139, if you haven't read that one lately, it might be a good one to look at again. Because in Psalm 139, it speaks of a God who is all-knowing, a God who is all-wise, a God who is everywhere present. He knows all things. And just pick it up in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Is there any place I can go? Psalmist is that. Is there any place I can go? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, perhaps like a shipwreck, perhaps like on the island of Malta, out in the middle of nowhere. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Friends, there is nowhere where he will not go and be with you. God perhaps may be sending a detour message yet today. We talked earlier about this detour being an alternate path to arrive at your destination. When When we speak of a detour from God in relationship to salvation, I believe the equation changes just a little bit. Because God desires, just like he did with the Apostle Paul on that road to Damascus. He's pointing out and he holds out that picture at the end of Romans 10 where his hands are outstretched and continue to be outstretched to a disobedient people. He's holding out his hands, wanting people to hear and wanting people to see that there is another way. There's another way. It's the, it's not an alternate path. It's the alternate path which will only arrive at his intended destination. What I'm getting at here is this, that when God takes someone on a detour, spiritually speaking, salvation speaking, he's leading them, drawing them to the one way. This is not one of many options to get onto your destination. No, he's moving you, in fact, to show you and point to you one way to get on his path. It's essentially removing us from our path. Where were we once walking before we were walking his path? We were walking a path, the scripture says it's called a broad way, and it leads where? To destruction. Place we know in the Bible. And I praise God for God's detour in my own life. And I hope today you can take time to praise him for the detour that he gave you. And he opened your eyes to be able to get you and turn you onto his path. His path is the way, the truth, the life. His path is the one that leads to everlasting life. There are no other paths that lead to everlasting life. And that path only happens in and through his son, Jesus Christ. That's it. 
And so I pray this morning that the Lord would do some work on each one of us in regard to this, thinking about this whole idea of a detour because it applies, no doubt, in the sense of what Paul was going through on the island. He's not yet at Rome. He's supposed to be at Rome. He's not there yet. He's on a detour. He's had a shipwreck. Now he's three-month layover in Malta. But even in the midst of all of the detours on his destination to Rome, which, by the way, is the destination God had told him that's where he's supposed to be. He's on the right path. I pray we would be awakened in our own lives that when God sends us on a detour in life, that we would come to understand there's still work for us to do. There's still work for us to do. There's still things he wants us to accomplish for his glory, for his purposes while we're on the detour. And I pray that we would see, like Paul, opportunities to serve, opportunities to be a witness, opportunities to proclaim and preach the gospel to people who don't know him. And coming out of it all, be able to see the fruit of all that was left behind, all that the Lord did, and to be able to know without a doubt his presence was not only with me, but his presence filled that whole island. 17 miles wide, nine miles, uh, 17 miles long, nine miles wide. His presence was there on that island. Friends, it's comforting to know that wherever we may be, if we are in Christ we can know with certainty that his presence is with us. He will never leave you nor forsake you. At the end of the Great Commission, he's talking about teaching, baptizing, teaching them to obey all things which I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. As you go about making disciples of all the nations, the promise is that he'll be with you. He'll be with you. Trust him. His presence will be with you. He's given to you his Holy Spirit. Walk by faith, trusting that he'll do exactly what he said he'd do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for your word, first of all. Thank you for the truth that you give to us in your word. The examples that you give to us in your word. The life that this word brings the, the living and active word that it is, Lord, I pray that each one of us here, as we open this word, Lord, we'd be able to see these wonderful truths, that you would open our eyes and give us understanding. Help us to see that this is not just about this man named Paul and those who are on the ship with him. And Father, I pray that we would, would be able to see what the text says, be able to see what it means, be able to know that this also, this word has been revealed to us out of your great love for us, to show us your truths, to show us your principles, to show us the patterns by way, the way that you operate so that then we might be able to take this word in and that we might be able to receive it. We might then be able to live it out, to walk this word forward in our lives. And today, Lord, we're reminded of your presence. Even in the midst of detours that come our way, your presence with us. Father, we're grateful for your presence. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence within us who abides within us always. And Lord, I pray that we would keep in step with your Spirit who's always going to remind us of Christ and point us to Christ. Father, this morning, we just say thank you. We thank you for your presence with us. For Lord, we were once walking a certain direction. And we praise God, 
this morning. That you opened our eyes. And you drew us to the path. The path of your son Jesus Christ. This path that leads to life everlasting. And Father, I pray that as we rejoice in that good news, we would not be content with just rejoicing in that for ourselves. But Lord, it would motivate us and stir us and persuade us then to tell about this good news to those around us who need to hear. There are many natives, many Publius folks that we might encounter in our days. And I pray, Father, just like Paul, we would be willing to serve. We would look for opportunities to serve. We would look for ways that we can proclaim and preach and teach the gospel and with our lives live out the gospel that they might be able to see and praise you, Father. Thank you for this word. We give you praise and we rejoice in what it has to say. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.